We've had a lot of optimism from both of you there, but my very first thought when it comes to something that can help slow down the aging process is, can you imagine the debates on the state pension age? Welcome to Pin Factory, the Adders with Issues podcast. My name is Mekalesh, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and Dr. Madsen Peary, President of the Adam Smith Institute. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing COVID in the state, the next billionaires, and class war. It's now very common to see people arguing that COVID-19 has fundamentally and permanently reshaped the role of the state. While we have a conservative government that's mooting tax rises and more spending on things like social care and healthcare and so-called levelling up. Madsen, we were just to have a conversation with you just to put things in more, I suppose, a, a historical context, thinking about your experiences uh, pushing back against the larger state and I suppose being quite successful in, in the 1970s and 1980s. Do you ever feel like we're seeing a lot of your previous success being undone at the current moment? Yes, well, we've been through um, a national emergency. And so, of course, the, the power of the state had, has um, <laughs> crept further into our lives, as it does on such occasions, uh, not necessarily permanently. I remember World War II uh, involved um, huge encroachments upon personal liberties. The state told us what we could eat, even what we could wear. Um, and it, it, um, this was systematically uh, undone afterwards, but it did take years. It, it, uh, it, I think, was six years after the end of World War II before rationing was finally abolished and we could eat and wear what we liked. So, uh, yes, there have been encroachments on our liberties, but that means that when this is over, and that seems to be imminent, um, we must all work hard to recapture the liberties we, we enjoyed beforehand. And the experience of post-World War II indicates that this can be done. Now, in the 70s, of course, we had seen the state move uh, into, uh, under mostly Labour government, move into uh, business, uh, industry, and uh, that, of course, uh, dismantled a lot of the freedom people had to do uh, concerning enterprise, uh, employment. Uh, fully a third of the country, 35%, lived in uh, state-subsidised, state-owned housing. And, you know, it, it took um, a real effort uh, on the part of Margaret Thatcher's team so to speak, to to, uh, to unravel all that. But but again, it was done. So those those two previous examples indicate that it is possible. So I remain an optimist that when when this is behind us, uh, we will systematically, one by one, recapture those liberties. I feel like the World War II example is particularly apt here in the sense that you had this kind of initial five, six years or so where some of the the harshest kind of restrictions and encroachments on liberty remained. But even after that, for the next kind of 30 years or so, you, you also had the post-war Keynesian consensus and a kind of fundamental shift in how we see the role of the state. Do you see a potential concern that there could be the same thing here with the, the kind of we've had an emergency and while some of the, the most extreme stuff might go away fairly quickly, that there'll be this this kind of fundamental shift in uh, in how the general population, I guess, view the ideal size of the state and the role of the private sector? Yes. Um, those who uh, fail to uh, learn from the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. 
and the mistake made after World War II was to elect a socialist government, which is precisely why the state advanced and why it took so long to recapture those liberties. I think having learned that lesson, the British people, uh, I hope, will be sensible enough not to do the same again and uh, it, it, not to elect a, a socialist government. The departure of Jeremy Corbyn makes that unlikely. But I think even a Labour government, a moderate Labour government, uh, would uh, seriously slow down the process of, of recovering liberties, simply because, um, on the whole, parties of the left are, um, shall we say, less friendly towards individual liberty and, and uh, much more in favour of collective state provision, which involves a loss of individual choice and opportunity. I think there's that fascinating comparison between uh, the UK and Germany, or particularly West Germany, I should say, where the UK kept in place a lot of the restrictions um, after the war for a long period of time, uh, many years, whilst West Germany said, yeah, you know what, we're just going to get rid of rationing tomorrow. And it, it seemed like in many ways, because of better economic policies, because it was a lot more hands-off state, because in, in of course, the state had been delegitimized by the war, the, the, there was a lot more tendency towards economic success after the war um, in Germany. And, and these days, Germany is a, a per capita richer than the UK, arguably, you know, won the peace. Or well, the UK, because the war had justified the role of the state. The state had been quite successful in, in terms of fighting the war and winning the war with the support from the US and, and Russia and you know, your Commonwealth friends. Um, you, you had a different idea. I also think, though, with, with specifically with COVID, I think there's, there's a lot of policies that are unlikely to stick around. So some policies, I think, in, in some senses, are well designed to be removed after the crisis. Furlough in normal times makes no sense whatsoever. Not Paying people not to work is a very pandemic era necessity. On the other hand, though, I think a lot of other policies that say spending more on healthcare or maybe the universal credit increase are much harder to undo. The political economy of those is once you've done it. Something that Matt said I want to um, unpack a little bit more, though, is you made the point, of course, parties that left tend to be less respective of individual liberty, tend to, to you know, have a view towards a bigger state. I, I think that that's absolutely true in, on, on average, but it seems like the current conservative government is uh, in some ways replicating some of the post-war Tory governments in the sense that they've effectively bought into a kind of a, a Keynesian consensus. I don't it's not really a Keynesian consensus anymore, but it's certainly a consensus that there is a larger role for the state um, in things like healthcare, in terms of leveling up, in terms of obesity policy and and making people slim down, a very kind of nanny status tendency. It doesn't feel like that this Conservative government, although it's, it's not Jeremy Corman, and I'm sure Keir Starmer would also want a bigger state than, than Boris Johnson, it doesn't feel like the instinct of this government is towards a smaller state, like you, like you might have seen in the past with Tories, or we certainly saw under Thatcher. In the Tory party, there, there has um, very often, indeed one might say always been, a um, tug of war between um, Tory paternalism um, and um, Tory individualism. Uh, between wanting to look after people and make sure that uh, things are done that are, quote, in their best interests, as perceived by their uh, <clears throat> benign leaders, or, or um, allowing people to make those decisions themselves. And, and there's, there's always been that in the Tory party. And the, the rise of Margaret Thatcher in the late 70s uh, represented, you know, uh, a, a gradual um, uh, eroding the power of the paternalists who had dominated uh, Tory thinking. Margaret Thatcher's first cabinet was actually full of them. She only gradually, over a series of reshuffles, uh, put people um, more like her own way of thinking uh, into place. So, um, yes, uh, obviously, uh, the paternalists are thick and, and uh, are thick on the ground in government, particularly in the Department of Health. There is a mindset there that, that uh, 
the state has to make the choices on behalf of people instead of giving them the information that will enable them to make informed choices themselves. And um, you know, vigilance is required to, to uh, basically keep such people in check, to tell them, no, this is not what government is for. Either, you know, uh, let people do these things for themselves or go and take a different job somewhere because you are completely inappropriate to be in government. Now, let me talk a bit, bit about uh, West Germany. Because it's a good example, as I say, if you learn from history, you don't repeat its mistakes. And um, <clears throat> Germany went for the bonfire of restrictions under uh, Ludwig Erhard and, of course, succeeded. They weren't the only ones. Hong Kong did the same under Sir John Capithwaite. Um, Singapore, uh, similarly. Uh, all of the uh, countries that go for that growth by making a bonfire of restrictions, uh, by removing the regulations, by lowering the taxes, all of them, without exception, uh, succeed in achieving economic growth. Now, you're, you're right, of course, that once you've increased spending on things like uh, health and, uh, or whatever, uh, it's very difficult to wind that back. But the lesson is that you can grow the economy uh, at such a fast rate that the proportion you are spending diminishes. So not because you, you've reduced or hacked back the spending, but because you've increased the wealth of society around it, so that its proportion of the total becomes less significant. And that, of course, is, is precisely what Margaret Thatcher's government did. She didn't cut back on uh, public spending or social services. They increased, but the rest of the economy grew like the clappers and, and the public sector became less significant as a proportion. So the same could be done again if we follow the example of West Germany, make that dash for growth by freeing the economy. Yes, it could happen again. Yeah, I think this is this is always one of the ironic lessons, which is uh, Thatcher managed to set the UK up for an extraordinary period of growth um, by doing the, the kind of structural reforms that were very unpopular. And then Blair comes in and he he is able to spend the riches of the Tory years, because as the economy continues to grow over the 90s into the 2000s, uh, he's able to spend more, but it's very affordable. So you can have a bigger welfare state if you have a bigger economy, if you have um, a bigger pie. And I think that's absolutely right. And this is something that um, I, I think it was very understood by the Blairites and they were happy to you know, endorse capitalism and, and the finance sector or whatever else because it gave them the riches they needed to um, redistribute around the country as they so pleased. I suppose then it's, it's back to the question about how do we remake that case? So what, what are the kind of, I suppose, lessons you learn in, in the, I suppose, the, the darkest of years? I, I think for a lot of free marketeers, they're feeling a bit, uh, a bit sad at the moment. Uh, it seems like there's there's very little public mood for you know that that bonfire of regulations, as you say. What is what was key? What what was it that uh, I suppose kind of changed public mood? Do we need another winter of discontent? Another crisis moment? Is is do we have does the whole system have to fail in order for uh, people to be persuaded that you you need some tough medicine? Even if you know this is. And this is a persuasive argument that Thatcher's and Thatcher's policies were never overwhelmingly popular, but they trusted Thatcher to do the right thing and, and she was able to do it and she was successful. Um, and, and she was an excellent leader in that respect. And But it, it took the context, took the context of the crises of the, the 1970s to get to that point. We're not exactly in a moment of economic crisis right now. Uh, we're in a kind of COVID recession, but I think the economy is kind of bouncing back. Uh, what, what does it take to make those arguments to make us rich? In the... Um... 1970s, there was a general malaise in the country. There was a perception that the status quo was unacceptable. 
Britain was going to hell in a handbasket. We were the sick man of Europe. We had the lowest growth rate, the highest strike rate, etc., etc. And there was a general feeling this can't go on. And Margaret Thatcher came along at just the right time to do something about that. Now, I don't think we necessarily have that this time. When um, the, the pandemic is over, uh, people will look at our society and our economy, and I'm not sure there will be the same, uh, what's the term, rejection of the status quo as we had then. So the arguments will have to be a little more nuanced and more subtle. We'll have to point out that in the areas where we have removed the regulations and lowered the taxes, we've achieved uh, success and growth, and therefore we have a case for extending them to other areas. Things like free ports and enterprise zones um, are a key in this because people are always prepared for an experiment, a trial on a small scale. And you can then use the success of that small scale trial to advocate rolling it out for the rest of the economy. That's why the Treasury is, is so much opposed to uh, free ports, because they fear it, it will be used as a, a Trojan horse in order to, uh, to lower taxes and regulations generally. Uh, they've spent uh, 250 years opposing free ports, and they'll try to emasculate the current proposals for free ports to make them, you know, sub subsidy islands rather than genuine uh, uh, free ports, you know, with, with, with economic uh, growth because the taxes are low and because the regulations are light. Um, so those advocating free ports uh, have a, uh, a task in hand to make sure that those arguments uh, from the Treasury don't win and that we can get genuine experiments uh, showing the merits uh, that uh, low taxes and deregulation can achieve and use that as an argument to roll it out over the rest of the economy and enjoy the same benefits throughout society. If this government wants to see some levelling up in, in the uh, less affluent areas of the North, uh, they could they could uh, they could learn from that and perhaps you know whole uh, counties indeed in in and cities in in the north um, might be invited to bid for for uh, that kind of status that is to become um, low tax like regulation areas in order to achieve the growth that can persuade them to catch up with with the uh, living standards of of the south i feel like that parallel with the 1970s malaise and the kind of sick man of europe thing is is quite quite apt for the times now and when you look at a lot of interviews with Boris specifically he tends to mention this quite a lot he wants to be the person that kind of gives Britain its confidence back and, and talks a lot in those sort of terms and I think in a lot of ways the pandemic actually has stopped or has at least limited the extent to which that agenda has been pursued. I mean, fairly obviously, you know, it, it stopped a lot of the kind of main plans that the Conservatives had when it came to a lot of their policies around the economy and stuff. Now, some of those are the ones that have tended to gone through, uh, to go through post the pandemic hitting have not idea, been particularly inspirational or, or, or ideal from a free marketeer perspective. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know, we mentioned obesity policy, but we talk a lot on this podcast about some of the restrictions on online freedom of speech, some of the kind of competition regulation proposals we've been seeing uh, from my end, working more on the kind of social liberalism side of things, of course, a complete lack of movement on drug policy, some uh, stuff on immigration and refugee policy that I think is particularly objectionable. Although, again, th this sort of stuff isn't as much directly related to the kind of classic economic policies when it comes to taxation and, and regulation and whatnot. But on the one hand, it feels like we just haven't had the chance to see what that would have looked like, the kind of optimist uh, 
global Britain agenda in full, at least. We have seen a taste of it when it comes to some great free trade deals that have been signed, for example. So it's, it's not all lost. But in some ways, it's kind of the the recovery or the, the recovery of national backbone that we never get to see. Uh, and maybe we will get to see that if Boris and the Conservatives get another um, four or five years in power. Uh, it might be the case that actually it reveals that Maybe it is very different from the Thatcher years and actually the recovery agenda and the, the kind of boosting confidence back into Britain agenda does not align with the sort of free market principles that it did in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. But fingers crossed that actually when it comes down to it and we do get the full opportunity to unleash the power of free markets and uh, and free people in the UK, then the Conservatives will actually end up starting to do that. Margaret Thatcher was helped hugely by a crop of young backbenchers who organised themselves and, and formed a group within, within the Tory party in Parliament and effectively captured the Tory party from the paternalists. These were the so-called No Turning Back group, named after the title of their first publication. And, and she was enormously helped in Cabinet to have an organised group of backbenchers uh, I say backbenchers, but virtually all of them went on to become ministers and some indeed cabinet ministers as gradually she asserted her authority and her own values. So that could happen again. Well, from a pessimistic note to an increasingly optimistic note to an even more optimistic note, on to our next discussion about the future of innovation and the billionaires and trillionaires on the way. The likes of self-driving electric cars, people carrying drones, lab-grown meats and the rise of artificial intelligence are already beginning to create billionaires. But these sort of innovations are undoubtedly just the beginning with so many huge problems to still be solved and so much wonderful profits to be made. But before we go on to talking about who those next billionaires might be, I think it's probably worth thinking about the kind of common discourse that we tend to get around billionaires, um, at least in the, the kind of general public and in newspapers and whatnot. Madsen, I guess coming to you first, do you think that billionaires are a kind of a policy failure, the argument that it's unethical for anyone to have that much money whilst there are people who, who suffer from things like homelessness and, and lack of food? It, it depends how the billionaires acquired their wealth. Um, if they acquired it by looting the state, uh, like the Russian oligarchs, then, of course, one has very little sympathy for them and one, they, one can't see very much good that, um, <clears throat> that they do in society. Um, if, if they inherit it, yes, it, it, it's arguable, but, but it's, um, I think, less praiseworthy than if they've made it themselves by providing goods and services that have enhanced the lives of people. And I'm very pro-billionaire. If, if they are the people who, who've done it through business innovation, uh, bringing people something that they want and are prepared to pay for. I mean, I, I, um, I use Google many times a day. I, I use Amazon deliveries many times a week. These have been great improvements uh, that have made life a lot easier for me. Uh, and the fact that uh, their proprietors and founders have grown rich and become billionaires it's testament to the fact that there are many people like me who, who you know, have seen their lives enhanced. And we want more people to do that. We should be, instead of denigrating billionaires, we should be um, basically asking other people to aspire to do the same and, and indeed making it easier for them to have those aspirations and to fulfil them. 
a, f- a few weeks ago, Jeff Bezos jetted off out of the planet. And uh, you could argue that as a result, the world became just that little bit more equal, of course, because uh, with somebody, the richest person on the planet, not there anymore, the distribution of income was, you know, the Gini coefficient was just that little bit better. But can you really argue that if Jeff Bezos leaving the atmosphere for, for that momentary second made anybody better off? I'm not having billionaires, not having the people at the top, I'm arguably make us a lot worse off. If, if Jeff Bezos alternatively never existed, we, we might never have Amazon, we might never have the huge consumer surplus that comes out of the fact that we can get so many goods delivered to us so rapidly. I mean, we just went through a global pandemic where it was companies like Netflix and, and Amazon and you know, Tesco's and Sainsbury's that, that, that kept us fed in quite extraordinary circumstances. And this is where I think that profit is, is viciously misunderstood. I, I think there's this kind of backwards idea, probably from the fact that the market system is a relatively new innovation. We evolved in a context where you could only really benefit by stealing something from somebody else. It was it was truly a, a zero-sum game. If, if I had more uh, food, that means you probably had a little bit less food. It means I might have stolen something from you. What the market does is it, it allows us to trade and mutually benefit. So you feel like you've won out of it, but you, they, you must feel like they've done badly out of it. But in fact, both sides have won. And that's really where the profit comes from. Profit comes from um, creating a product whose some of its parts uh, cost less to produce than, than you're willing to pay for and you're willing to benefit from that product. And we see profit as somehow evil, but in fact, profit is the reward for creating that product, for creating an innovation uh, which is beneficial to us or not even an innovation necessarily, just something that is beneficial to people who are willing to buy it and it's creating value. And and it's the, the perfect, it's the reason why the market system works is because it actually incentivizes you to be selfless and, and do those products for other people. Yeah, it is quite enjoyable that the uh, Jeff Bezos example with space, I could just imagine the kind of offices of Oxfam waiting until his spacecraft crossed the Kármán line, the boundary of space, and suddenly cheering and realizing that the world had become a significantly better place uh, that second after doing that. Uh, Madsen, I think that the, Rus- the Russian oligarchs example that you mentioned is is instructive from the free market perspective. You know, if you are using the cold dead hand of the state in order to acquire vast amounts of wealth and it's not something that's enriching the lives of others but do you think it's fair to say that there are are no kind of completely clean billionaires in this sort of definition it seems like most kind of people of significant wealth though perhaps not all have been involved in some way um for example, I mean, Tesla's state subsidies springs to mind. Even the billionaires that we might admire in, in various other ways tend to have had some role of the state in helping to acquire their wealth. Um, no, I, I, I don't go along with that. I, I um, you know, Obviously, look, you've got to distinguish between capitalism and crony capitalism. And uh, if people um, make their wealth by persuading the state to rig the markets so they can command higher prices than they would if there were genuine open competition. Obviously, there is very little benefit to the public in that and considerable considerable harm in that their their taxpayers' money and and, uh, laws are are being used um, to to prevent uh, the benefits of a market uh, filtering down to the the people who need it most. Um, But no, I'm I'm pro-billionaire on the whole, um, provided um, people pay... uh, for services that they value, uh, and people become incredibly rich, 
Uh, I'm not in the least interested in the difference between me and Jeff Bezos. I'm interested in the absolute command of resources that I have. I want to see if I can afford another holiday. And I'm sure that a, a poor person in Nigeria isn't worried that another billion added to Bill Gates has made her comparatively poorer. Um, the, the concern there is, am I going to get enough to feed my children at the end of the month? You know, uh, Can I afford shoes to send my kids to school? It, it's not the difference between us and the billionaires that matters. It's do the billionaires increase the wealth of society? Do they make facilities available for all of us that allow us all to become so to speak, richer in terms of our command of resources? And I think the answer is an emphatic yes. So I think that we've done a good job there of kind of explaining why it is that the billionaires that we that come to mind when, when we think about them, at least in the UK and the US, are, are justified in their wealth, or they're not a policy failure, as is often accused. But one of the more sophisticated objections, at least in my mind, or, or concerns when it comes to kind of concentrations of wealth for individuals in general is actually the kind of political objection here the idea that well even if you know that people create a lot of wealth for society through innovation um, helping people and improving their lives in many different ways just the sheer fact that there's that amount of wealth concentrated in a particularly small area gives them given the fact that we have a government and a state that is is open to you know lobbying in in some ways or shapes or forms the potential to have an outsized influence on politics and actually this kind of could lead to a feedback loop where the sort of worries we have about you know um, subsidies and using the state in a kind of crony capitalist way could become more likely do you see that as as an issue Madsen and if so do you think that there's a way to kind of solve it um, without kind of killing the goose that lays the golden eggs as it were mm. I, I take a sort of tangential approach to that. Um, I, I take the line that there is a uh, richesse oblige as there is a noblesse oblige. And it is, uh, so to speak, the moral duty of rich people to behave in decent and honourable ways. And uh, I also think that when they give a large um, part of their resources to charities, that they spend them far more efficiently than government does when it tries to achieve similar objectives through state spending. Uh, I look at uh, the, the Gates Foundation and, and the efforts it is making to conquer malaria, for example. Um, that, that's absolutely admirable. Uh, I look at what um, Bezos uh, is, uh, and indeed uh, Elon Musk, is, are doing towards uh, the exploration of space um, uh, and regard that as admirable. Um, you know, I, I, I fundamentally, I, I, I quite like to see um, billionaires... Uh, taking a moral responsibility to, to um, uh, improve uh, the lives of people and solve some of the world's problems. I, I'm, you know, uh, what's the term? I, I, I'm a, an aficionado billionaire. There is a tendency, certainly in the West, for, for us to uh, admire <clears throat> and be enthralled by celebrity status. And these billionaires are celebrities, just, just like um, pop stars and, and, um, and, and movie stars. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we take great pleasure in, in watching the antics of celebrities and thereby participating a little bit vicariously in their lives. Richard Branson, uh, you know, used to set world records for hot air ballooning across the Atlantic and the Pacific. Um, Bezos and Musk are going into space, you know. Um, these are these make life more interesting for the rest of us. That's really what I'm saying. There is, if you like, an entertainment function that is being achieved here as well. 
And it would be very dull if people, you know, just lived humdrum, ordinary lives, doing ordinary, serious things. We we, we all like a, a, what's the term, a, a little holiday from time to time. Yeah, the, the space stuff is all well and good for me. But the real highlight was seeing Elon Musk on the uh, Joe Rogan uh, podcast smoking a cannabis spliff, which was very enjoyable for me to watch. Although I think Tesla's stocks uh, didn't enjoy that one quite so much and i think just from from my perspective you've got i i agree certainly i think that the the kind of noblesse oblige that richesse oblige as you mentioned is as important kind of counterbalance there and also there there is i think the brute fact that most research suggests there's very little influence when it comes to just pure spending in terms of things like electoral outcomes for example actually the the question we should be asking in say america for example is why is there so little money in american politics given the potential gains and the reason is because it doesn't tend to be a particularly effective way uh, of necessarily getting people to vote for you it turns out that actually money in politics is not necessarily when, when it comes to the electoral process at least the massive force that it's sometimes claimed to be uh, but onto the kind of the, the key thing that we mentioned in the title of this section uh billionaires obviously created in the main by solving people's problems. What are the sort of problems that you see, Madsen, as being ripe to solve to create the next set of billionaires? They fall into um, several categories. Making transport uh, easier, more convenient, uh, less costly. Making communication uh, easier. Conquering uh, diseases and conditions. You see, on... um, Obesity. The the efforts made have nearly all been uh, behaviour change, uh, and the first person who comes up with a, a product that basically says, I, "I'm not trying to change your behaviour. I'm trying to change the consequences of your behaviour," and uh, trying to stop people eating burgers and pizzas and kebabs, except of course young people who we want to encourage to get vaccinated. We give them burgers and pizzas and kebabs. Um, That aside, uh, the person who comes up with, if you like, a technological solution to obesity that doesn't require behaviour change is going to be a billionaire. There's, There's no question of that. You just just think of the things that make people a little bit unhappy in their daily lives. And think of people coming up with solutions for that. And I think you'll find, in many cases, that the ones who think it through and and come up with innovative ways of doing things or products and processes are going to get rich and quite right too. Matthew, do you see any uh, potential areas where you're you're likely to see the next billionaires emerge? I think if anyone can solve the ageing problem... Uh, that that is somewhere not just billionaires, but but mm. potentially trillionaires. If if you can get a pill or a drink or something along those lines that uh, pauses aging or slows down aging, or maybe some, maybe some kind of gene therapy or something along those lines, is certainly an obsession in Silicon Valley these days amongst you know the, the tech bros, millionaires, and billionaires um, to spend whatever it takes in order to extend their lives. And that then raises some interesting questions about how society functions if, if no one's dying anymore. I think that that's something beautiful about life is the fact that it is a set period of time. But even if you can extend, not just life, I think we've actually got very good at extending life in a sense, but the question is quality life, um, just that little bit longer. I think a lot of people, once they, they get into you know, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, the quality of their life is very low um, and that they don't 
potentially some of their own responsibility in terms of the way they live their life. But at the same time, if, if you could skip through that and, and just have, you know, maintain a, a younger body for longer and, and all the advantages of youth, uh, but all the uh, wisdom of age, you're going to have um, a, a very beneficial situation for society. So I think in my mind that, that kind of health angle is, is somewhere where there's just inordinate amounts of problems to be solved, inordinate amounts of money and profit and, and lovely stuff to be to be made. We've had a lot of optimism from both of you there, but my very first thought when it comes to something that can help slow down the aging process is, can you imagine the debates on the state pension age if that happens? Just imagine <laughs> the back and forth about uh, when, when it's finally decided that we, we need to extend it. But no, I, I think that the aging process is a fantastic candidate. Again, as you say, Matthew, potentially for the next trillionaire, it's one of the, the perennial problems that's played humanity and I, I don't necessarily agree with you that I, I think that something beautiful about life is that it is time limited I'm much more of a, a kind of transhumanist on, on that sort of side of things I'd quite like to live forever thank you very much provided it's in a, a way where I can hop and skip and jump about rather than sitting there uh, in a chair for several hundred years not doing very much but uh, on that uh, on that note I think it's probably time to move on to the final section of this week's podcast which is on class war very ASI topic. The ASI does indeed love class war. In, in the latest example of illiberal student activism, uh, the London School of Economics class war campaign group has demanded the university's Hayek Society be dissolved as it promotes ideologies, and I quote here, that are harmful to marginalised students. Uh, we seem to have got a bit less attention on campus free speech issues lately, potentially because students actually haven't been on campus to try to censor each other, but there seems to be a return of that debate. Uh, Madison, do you, do you think we're in for, for a long haul on, on these issues? We're just going to see more demands for censorship on campus? I think there are encouraging signs that the, the high tide of suppression of free speech has probably peaked and that we're now seeing uh, some vice chancellors uh, express a determination to, to sustain uh, free speech on campus and, and not to listen to small minority groups uh, trying to shut down even debate. The notion that, that Hayek's ideas uh, cannot even be discussed at the LSE because they, quote, harm working class and marginalised people is frankly absurd. Uh, Hayek probably did um, as much as any other person to improve the lives of working class people throughout the world in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, it, it's uh, his ideas that mean that there are a billion people alive who, who would not have been alive, that starvation, which used to be a prospect faced by 90% of humanity, is now faced by a diminishing proportion of below 10%. Uh, this is because free market ideas have created wealth across the world and admitted working class people in poor countries onto world markets to sell their labour. And, and the general wealth of humankind uh, has expanded. Uh, it is frankly absurd that one should not even listen to these, the ideas that have achieved all this. I, I rather think that they're not going to get very far at the LSE with these proposals. Uh, the, the, the document they produced with their eight demands, it, it reads like, as I, I described it as a, a fascinating study in psychopathology. <laughs> it, it, it is so divorced and detached from the, the, the real world that I don't think it, it's going to be a starter. Yeah, it does always strike me as e extremely uh, weak to try to censor your opponents. Uh, it basically assumes that your ideas are not strong enough 
to win out in a battle of ideas. And the only solution is to not allow your, your opponent uh, to express them. And that seems even weaker on a university campus where it's meant to be the best and the brightest people should be able to listen to different ideas more different perspectives. In fact, that's the entire point of a, of a university education. And that's why campus free speech is just so essential. And I think that the pushback over recent years, the pressures coming from the government, the new legislation um, when it comes to campus free speech is to some extent turning the tide. Although I think it's hard to put a metric behind that. Yeah, just on, on that idea about turning the tide, I think you mentioned some of the free speech laws and, and focus on it from government. But I think probably the, the key factor here that's actually resulted in this becoming less of a problem and, and probably continuing to be less of a problem over time is this, this kind of cultural shift that we've seen. Uh, and part of that, I think, comes from the fact that when we did have the kind of crisis of, of free speech on campus, and when it was at least being discussed at significant length in uh, newspaper inches and online and on YouTube videos and the news in general, you had the situation of polarization, both in the US and the UK, the two kind of epicenters of this, at least, where you had kind of the, the pro and anti-Trump arguments in the US um, and then in the UK, you had the kind of Brexit issue um, feeding into increasing polarization and, and kind of ramping up the culture wars that, that are still going on, but maybe aren't quite as uh, burning quite as intensely as they were back then. So it feels like the kind of impetus that, that got a lot of people involved, whether it was in defending um, free speech or, or putting forward more controversial ideas that would attract backlash or the sort of cancel culture uh, campaigners and, and, and student activists that were fans of cracking down on, you know, people saying things uh, about Hayek, for example. You know, I, I feel like this is, it's become news because there hasn't been thing anything like this in the UK that I can remember for a while. I mean, you get occasional stories crop up still, sure. And I think, you know, saying that there's no issue with free speech on campus as a lot of people on the kind of center left do uh, is wrong. It's actually something that frustrates me quite a bit, where on the one side, you've got people who are maybe moderates on the left. They might not go so far as to defend the ideas of their more radical comrades, but they'll constantly talk about how actually, you know, anyone who claims that free speech is an issue at universities is just a, a right wing blowhard. Um, despite the kind of brute facts on the ground of the fact that there is plenty of, um, or there has been certainly plenty of issues when it comes to uh, speakers getting deplatformed, for example, or some, some of the crazy stuff like this LSE group is doing. But on the other side, I, I do kind of get concerned, perhaps less so now, it doesn't seem to be happening as much, but I seem to, I get concerned with people on the center right and, and sometimes in free marketeers and libertarians who want to exaggerate i think the extent of this problem in in the uk at least i think in the us there probably is a, a stronger case that this is a, still a big issue but in the uk it doesn't seem to me like there is a kind of widespread opposition to the expression of controversial ideas at, at universities it seems like the group of people as you said um initially madsen in this case with the class war group it's it's a tiny fraction of the student population you know it's not a kind of large block of, of radical students who actually command the support of a significant number of their their comrades in arms it's just one or two people that are a little bit 
you know, a, a little bit ridiculous in their idea. Yeah, in a sense, it seems like the class war group is very not LSE. LSE famously being a, a Fabian institution, not a class war institution. Uh, and these days, if anything, in one of the most corporatist universities imaginable, and I say this as a, a graduate of the Great London School of Economics and Political Science, but also uh, with a bit of a questionable record in the past decade, particularly inviting uh, Gaddafi to to come onto campus accepting his money and, and having him as a as a guest speaker, at least via video link. It seems quite absurd to think Class War could have much of a buy-in at, at, at the LSE. And yeah, I'm interested in your views on that as well, Madsen, though, about this this idea that, well, okay, so on the, on the one hand, we're seeing potentially less publicly facing cases of, of censorship. And I think that could partly be explained by the fact that maybe people are choosing not to invite controversial speakers because they don't want to go through the the, the the rigmarole. And a lot of cases of censorship are, are basically self-censorship as people who don't feel comfortable expressing their views in class because they think they're going to get attacked by their um, fellow students and that you just have this a kind of quiet reality of, of silencing of controversial opinions that's very hard to measure in any meaningful way but is going on. Or is, I suppose, are you more of the kind of Daniel's view that potentially we're blowing up this issue a bit too much, so we're giving them these crazy people way too much attention that they don't really deserve? Again, learning the lessons of history. Um, all right, they're a small group of deranged fanatics. So were the Bolsheviks and the Nazis at the beginning. And look, look what they did. They stamped out freedom and slaughtered people by the millions. Um, so let, let's be vigilant. Let's watch it. All right. They are small, uh, but, but make sure they don't get big like the Nazis and the Bolsheviks did. Um, you know, when, when, you, when government bans something, when people campaign to have something banned, like, you know, certain foodstuffs, for example, um, they do so because they know that people want it. <laughs> they wouldn't need to ban it if people didn't want it. And when you, when you want to ban certain ideas... It's evidence that they have their appeal to some people. And we, it is, you know, taking Mill's case, it is through the, the open debate and discussion between ideas that, that um, so, so to speak, truth will emerge and, and uh, falsity will be exposed. So free speech is, is very important. We don't want speakers shut down. Uh, there is, uh, as um, Matthew said, uh, considerable degree of self-censorship by academics who, who lean from centre-right. Um, they, they know that, that, uh, that there will be abuse uh, levelled at them, calls for their dismissal and punishment if they express you know, genuine views. And to these uh, LSE fanatics, this would include free market views. You know, they'd, any society that promotes such views, which would include the LSE Economic Society and the LSE Conservative Association, they fall victims to this. And um, as for the um, demand, wait for it, that people who've been privately educated should not be allowed at the LSE, that would hugely shift the uh, diversity of the, the LSE, since uh, nearly all of the um, non-white foreign students have themselves been privately educated. So uh, quite apart from bankrupting the LSE as it lost the fees, it would seriously uh, distort the, the um, ethnic makeup of, of the LSE, which is I'm not sure these guys really want. I, yeah, I, I think the reason why we, we obsess and arguably a little bit too much about universities, but I, very importantly so, is because universities are where we're developing uh, the thinking uh, as well as the people who are going to 
come on to lead society in future. It is uh, the the elite, for, for better or worse, the elite finishing school, even those who um, oppose universities and say that too many people have been to universities, often they themselves have been to universities. So it, it does um, develop those ideas and also develop that culture. And if we want a, a free society and we want a society which appreciates a diversity of opinions, you need to start at university campuses, perhaps even uh, a little bit earlier than that, if you want that to be the reality in future. But but I think on that note, I wanted to thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Pin Factory podcast. You've been listening uh, to me, Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute and my colleagues, Daniel Pryor, who is our head of programs, uh, as well as our president, Dr. Madsen Peary. Uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review us on your chosen podcast provider uh, and do tune in next week for another episode. Mm-hmm.